Si eres de las personas que quiere empezar su propia empresa, si quieres trabajar en un startup o simplemente quieres seguir aprendiendo el mundo de negocios, quiero recomendarte un podcast. El podcast se llama Fundadores y lo conduce Alex Galvez. En este programa, Alex se encarga de entrevistar a los fundadores de las startups más relevantes de Latinoamérica. Y cada episodio te da ese empujón que necesitas para seguir trabajando en tu proyecto. Además, como Alex tiene ya mucha experiencia en el mundo de las startups, pues ha invertido en al menos 40 startups distintas, sabe perfectamente por dónde llevar la conversación para extraer de sus invitados aprendizajes y herramientas prácticas que puedes aplicar tú en lo que estás construyendo. En fin, es un podcast que no te puedes perder si eres emprendedor o quieres seguir aprendiendo. Busca Fundadores, donde sea que escuches podcast. Y si no sabes con qué episodio empezar, como yo creo que todos son buenos, te recomiendo que empieces con el más reciente. Escucha Fundadores en cualquier plataforma de audio o en fundadorespodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Hello, mom. This is Diego Barrazas, and welcome to episode number seven of the Dementes Podcast, a podcast where I interview people who are constantly defying the status quo. My goal here is to help good and different ideas spread, and as always, I try my best to bring the most interesting people to the show. Today, I have a great guest. His name is Bob Gower. Uh, he's an awesome guy, and he's also an organizational design consultant, which means that he gets hired to improve organizations. He also happens to be the author of a book called Agile Business, and he's constantly invited to give keynotes at different venues. He teaches an organizational design masterclass in Mexico. That's where I met him. And he was recently interviewed by Shrini Rao for the Unmistakable Creative podcast. That's a show I really like, and the interview was actually really, really cool. I will be adding the link here in the show notes in case you're interested in listening to that. And with no further ado, here's my conversation with Bob. So enjoy. Welcome, Bob, for being here. Thank you for being here. Um, just to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What, who are you for the people that don't know you? Sure. Who, who's Bob Gower and what brought you to this day today? So I'm Bob Gower. I am an organizational design consultant and I live in New York City. And what we mean by organizational design is kind of broad, but kind of simple. Uh, people hire me and the people that I work with to improve their companies, improve their organizations. Usually that has something, something to do with uh, efficiency or speed, the amount of stuff they're able to accomplish. Sometimes it has a lot to do with culture, and then sometimes it, it relates to innovation. And often it's kind of all three, like we need to do more stuff, we need to do it better, and we want to be happier as we do it and be able to attract better talent to work with us. So all of these things are kind of interrelated. Um, but yeah, that's what I do. What brings me to Mexico is uh, I've had the great pleasure of teaching uh, a course on organizational design at Sedim, uh, both in Mexico City and here in Monterrey. Uh, this was my fourth class. We just finished about 20 minutes ago. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and talking about organizational design, Uh, the question that, that I need to ask is what's going to change in the workspace? What do you see the new trends or what's happening in the world? Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. So when I also, I guess a little more about me, I am not like an academic uh, around okay. organizational development or anything like that. I'm more of a, I'm an MBA. So I, I do have some business training and I've spent a lot of time working in technology. 
um, and being a coach, being a consultant, um, trying to make systems better, um, often around how we build technology and also management systems and the related systems around it. But um, I feel like the people that I work with, we're, that we're, I mean, it's a broad kind of loose community around the world, but we're really looking at how organizations are changing. And we think that there's a big shift or we notice a big shift that organizations are traditionally have been very, uh, let's call them static systems, very mm-hmm. fixed kind of systems. And then we'll reorganize them every three or four years and, uh, and then they'll go back to kind of a static and fixed system. And they're also very command and control where you have, uh, you know, traditionally the thinkers at the top and the doers at the bottom. And what we're noticing is that that is too slow to operate in today's world. So today's world, okay. things are volatile, things are uncertain, things are complex. And so we're, the organizations just don't have the time to have the information flow from mm-hmm. the doers up to the thinkers and the orders to flow back down. And also when you do that, when you separate organizations like that, you tend to get less engagement on the part of the people in the org. Okay. So we, you know, so the, the term that we, that has been coined, um, I don't know if I'm married to it <laughs> or whatever, but we call talk about a responsive organization. And the idea is just like, a, I don't know if you know the term, but like a responsive website is one that can sense the kind of phone or the kind of device you're on and it'll, it'll, it'll the change. The size of the screen and stuff. Yeah, the size of the screen. And it'll show a different version of that website based on what machine device you're looking at it on. And so the idea in, a, in an organization is an organization can change shape, can change function, can change policy, can change a lot of things about itself in order to respond to the environment, right? So it gets information in and that information... Um, good friend of mine just uh jeff Gottelf just wrote a book called sense and respond and it's that kind of thing like you sense the environment you respond to the environment and you uh by the way sense and respond it's a good book it's just out yeah and, uh, go, harvard, go check harvard, it out harvard business review press jeff Gottelf and josh Saden. i'll put it on the show notes put it on the show notes yeah yeah so yeah it's um so our you know i think we think a lot is changing and what's the big story though is that we're really starting to look at, at businesses as whole systems rather than as individual you know we used to like how do we just take how do we make something more efficient how do we take a cost out of a process or how do we um, improve revenue or you know and all these things are important but what we're finding is that every time you pull a little bit of a a small problem it's attached to all these other things and all these and and so we're and so we look at systems as at organizations as systems and as whole systems really trying to improve all aspects of them at the same time or not at this, exactly the same time, not simultaneously, but to improve all aspects of the system rather than just, you know, let's make some more money. Like that's not that's not our concern necessarily. Okay, and, and can you give me an example of these two types of companies we're talking about just to, to get people on the same page? Sure. Um, so one of my favorite companies, a company actually I grew up near their headquarters uh, or not their headquarters because they don't really have headquarters. That's one of the interesting <laughs> things about them is a company called W.L. Gore. Um, okay. They make Gore-Tex, which is, a, which is in, it's in my dental floss. It's a material in my dental floss. It's also in my, is in my rain jacket. Um, and they've been around, I don't know how many years they've been around for, but they've been, they're kind of a pioneer in this sort of new way of working. And one of the things they do is, uh, well, they do a couple of things that are very interesting. One is that they only have, business units of about 150 people and okay. 100 and that when and when you only have 150 people what that means is that you don't need to have a lot of overhead in terms of processes in terms of tools 
Um, you don't have to have a lot of rules. You don't have to have a lot of policy. Uh, and you can allow people to be more engaged and more free as individuals. And I think that's really... So a lot of this thinking goes back to kind of Toyota and the Toyota production system where they said, let's actually ask the people who are building the cars how we can build the cars better. How okay. can we improve our system, right? And so this separation between thinker and doer. So now all of a sudden we have the doer as yeah, also They involved the ones that were getting their hands dirty. Yeah. And to the strategic, strategic part, strategic? Yeah, part. yeah. Well, not just in, not, I guess... It, it varies. Now, I'm not saying necessarily, necessarily in strategy, but, all, but mostly in sort of process improvement. So okay. like you're working on the car, you notice that I could, you could work faster if you had a tool that was shaped differently or if you had a tool tray that traveled along with you rather than a tool tray that you had to go back and forth to, something like that. Okay. So what they would do is they, they had a machine shop in the shop and they, in the factories And they would take uh, they would take the suggestion, and not only would they take the would they hear the suggestion, they would act on it. Okay. And so um, there's a wonderful story about uh, a joint venture between GM and Toyota that happened back in the in the mid '80s, um, where uh, a, a General Motors plant they adopted the Toyota production system. Kind of a, it's a strange it's a very strange story how it all happened, but one of the things they talk about is that the The GM person, the, the people from the from the General Motors, um, who had were having all sorts of quality problems and all sorts of personnel problems at the time. So you listen to some of these guys who learned the Toyota production system, and they were like, "Wait a minute! I just gave a suggestion, and they listened to me." And you know, it was like, it was they were surprised. Like, yeah, they were really surprised, and it was really, and and I think, and then what's really interesting about this is, so the plant that they converted, uh, which was in Fremont, California. They um, they had many many personnel problems, you know, um, drug use and alcohol use uh, on jo on the job, and even the workers talked about being depressed and not not being happy people. And they talk about when the Toyota production system came in, they actually started to live better lives. They became happier. They you know people talk about it. There's a wonderful podcast on it um, uh, from This American Life, where they talk about you know you'll, you'll hear people say it healed me from depression it gave my life it made me feel like my life had had more of a sense of purpose they had pride in their work and I think that's what I mean when I say whole system right it wasn't just efficiency it wasn't just better quality cars and more money for Toyota and more market share for Toyota but it was actually for the workers inside the system they felt valuable they felt important okay. they felt listened to they felt cared for And they developed a sense of pride in their work, and they developed a sense of engagement in their work, which in turn creates more quality, which in turn creates more market share, which in turn, right? So all, that's what I mean by by whole system, like everything is okay. kind of related to each other. Perfect. And, and just to rephrase it, because I think you just said it, but on the on the view of the employee, mm -hmm. what does the employee need to be engaged and to yeah. feel to feel good on the psychology of the employee? What do you think is what they value the most? I, I think we have a few core core needs, you know, but I think fundamental to being human is this need to feel useful and wanted. Um, it sounds a little strange because I think, you know, we're reaching a point now where in the States, we're really starting to talk about something called minimum basic income. I don't know if you're familiar with no, that. No, I've idea. never heard about that. But the idea is that just because you're a citizen of the country, you will get money. You will get enough okay. money to live, right? And And this is in response to an automated workforce because it's not, you know, productivity is up, but employment is kind of down or okay. static. And so you get, a, you have a lot of people that don't, 
And, and the only way to get money is to have a job, right? Like that's the way our yeah. economy is set up. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of talk in the government about changing this, about having like, let's say just, you know, the government will pay you. And just to get by. Just, just to get by, enough to get by. And it'll pay everybody equally so it doesn't look like welfare. And so mm-hmm. if you want to make more, obviously you can be an entrepreneur, but you can take more risks because you have this safety net. And all of this, it seems really like a good idea on some level. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the idea. But on another hand, like it doesn't answer the question of what happens when we don't feel useful anymore? What happens when we don't have a job to go to each day? What happens when we don't feel like we're part of a team? And there are a lot of studies that point to um, like elderly people that are connected to a family unit and feel useful actually live longer than, okay. than, than elderly people who are disconnected and don't feel useful. And they get things done by others and like they still want to do the things by themselves, right? Right. And, and I think also that kind of that help uh, giving the money to people will attend some of the lower part of the Maslow mm-hmm. hierarchy of needs. Right. But then everyone needs self-fulfillment, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe maybe it gives us the opportunity for people to invent new things to work up. And I think, like I say, the idea of this income, I think it's probably a good idea. I think it's coming. I think it may be coming faster than we all think. But, um, but at the same time, I think, you know, when you say, what is it that, how do people feel engaged? I think people feel engaged when they are connected to the purpose of something. Like they feel like this thing is meaningful to me. And I, and when they also feel like they're making progress on it, like they're, I'm able to, I'm working on this thing every day and I get, you know, you shared with me before this, that you were working on all these projects, right? Mm -hmm. It's meaningful, right? Like, and sometimes when it's your project, it's extra meaningful. But also, I think, you know, like I'm really inspired by Elon Musk and what he's doing with Solar City and Tesla. Um, not so much SpaceX. I, you know, I'm, I'm more interested. In that. I'm more in- interested in saving the planet than getting off the planet. But, but, um, but I think he really lives his purpose, and he re- and the organization really lives its purpose. And I can imagine even being like a car salesman for that company feeling like oh i feel connected to changing just to saving the earth from global warming yeah right you know like because because it had you know and which i would not feel if i was a car salesman for you know a company that did not have that where i wasn't selling hybrids or wasn't selling um you know electric cars okay yeah you want to be connected to a bigger thing then yeah you're right i think we really like that and uh you know i feel like i'm just running down uh dan pink's you know list (laughs) right right so but it's 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 uh you know purpose um, we like to get better at stuff. We like to we like to have challenges, um, you know. And I also think we really like to be connected to a team for the most part. Most people work better when they have a group of people around them okay. that is also inspired and also you know kind of part of it. I know I do. I know that I I experimented with being an independent, completely independent consultant for a while, and I was like, oh man, like I like to have a team. I like yeah. to have And part of that is just like I like to share the load, right? Like. There's some work that I don't like to do that my colleagues do like to do that we, you know, and then there's also, I don't know, it's just, I get better ideas when I'm with other people. Okay. Yeah. The social part of, of work helps bubble more Absolutely. ideas, right? Absolutely. And, and what do you, why do you think people are getting uh, so much of a resistance to adapt to do these new ways of working? Because we talked about that before, uh, that... Companies hire you mm-hmm. to help them work in a more agile way, yeah. and then they don't. Yeah, what's going on? 
Well, maybe part of it's just my skill as a consultant. <laughs> uh, no, actually, and, you know, it's funny. So we, you and I met, what, a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. something like that, right? And I, and, and I think the world has changed a little bit in that time period, I, and, or at least my, my world has. And what I've noticed is that at that time period, we were trying to sell a lot of this new ways of working, new ways of organizing work. Um, the firm I was with at that time, we, we were mostly known at this firm Undercurrent, we had a strong reputation as a strategy firm, and so we were still getting a lot of strategy work. And also, I just don't think the world really knew what we were doing. Mm. And now I notice, um, so I'm working with a company called The Ready now. I've also worked with a company called August, both mm-hmm. of which were founded by people who used to be at Undercurrent, and, and both of which are, are firms I highly respect and, and recommend. Um, and they they are all getting the right kind of work now. Like, And it's interesting how... Um, I think there's sort of the, the consciousness of working people really, they really, people are aware that work is broken okay. and it used to be just broken and frustrating for people, but now it's sort of broken and almost life threatening for the company, right? Okay. Like people are, you know, I think companies are increasingly aware that it's not just strategy uh, or, you know, where you put your money or, or anything that, that makes them vulnerable to competition because everybody's getting more and more vulnerable to, you know, the startup competition and all of this. But what really makes them vulnerable is their inability to move quickly. And, the, and that's directly attached to engagement. It's directly attached to team structure. It's directly attached to, um, to team autonomy, to how teams are, are formed and how teams are are respected, and so that's most of our work is really implementing um, this kind of team of team structures, okay. know, right? Yeah. yeah. So you you remember from class, of course, right? Can you just uh, explain a little bit what team of teams for people? Sure, that- sure. Yeah. So like, if you kind of go back a ways in terms of you know organizational development, I think the big the last big innovation was sort of the matrix organization, right? And this idea that you were going to have project managers or program managers who were going to disperse tasks to people who had specific skills, but they were, but it was sort of like the central control of the project. Okay. Like I have this matrix, I have this um, spreadsheet or, you know, vast uh, employee database. Mm-hmm. And if I need a task done, I assign it to this person. And if I'm a task doer, if I'm a doer, I just sit down and do the task. And if, okay. and what we notice is that when there's a disconnection between the task and the intent and the purpose of the task and the customer of the, and the customer of that task, that there seems to be like bad stuff gets made. Like it just does, it's not, it's not that good. And so um, our methodology kind of comes out of, well, the Toyota production system a little bit, which is this idea of, you know, having the doers become thinkers as well. Um, but also out of something called agile software development, that I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, too, we'll talk about that a little bit. But but the, I mean, the fundamental. I don't want to get into too, too much details or mm-hmm. too or to be too technical. But the idea is that instead of a, a big group of individuals who are being individually assigned tasks, instead what we do is create a large is create a set uh, a collection of small teams, and those teams can either be permanent or temporary. They can be full time. They can be part time. But when I'm working on a project, I'm working with another group of people, and usually small like five to maybe 10 people who are all, who also care about that project, who also, and maybe have different skill sets than I do because we need to kind of collab. I need to collaborate. It's not just one skill set that's needed to get something okay. done. Usually we need multiples, 
but rather than a project manager assigning the task to, to, to Joe and, and Alice and, you know, uh-huh. whatever, right? I'm sitting in a room with Joe and Alice and other people, and we're, we're dividing the work up ourselves. So okay. we're engaged, and we're engaged with the team, and we're engaged, and, even, and we're probably even talking to the customer and know who the customer is, understand the purpose of what we're creating, understand the business metrics that make it successful or make it non-successful, and perhaps even have control over strategy and that kind of thing, too. Okay. That's great. Yeah. And do you think that's the way companies should start should start working? Yeah, a lot of companies are working this way. I mean, I, if you look at um, some of the big ones, uh, it, Google doesn't bear any resemblance, I think, to some things that came before it. If you read Eric Schmidt's How Google Works, you'll get some ideas there. Um, Spotify's engineering culture is remarkable. They organize around these very small teams, and they've even engineered their product to make it more modular so it supports this team structure. Okay. So they've actually changed the way their technical infrastructure in order to support a different kind of human infrastructure, which I think is really, really interesting and fascinating. Um, Netflix has done some amazing stuff in terms of their, you know, um, making employee um, talent development really central to what they do. Um, Zappos, of course, you know, with delivering happiness, making employee happiness kind of a foundation. Mm-hmm. There's all these sort of different examples. And, and I think so, you know, like employee happiness is part of it. I think um, information transparency is part of it. Purpose okay. is part of it. There's a lot of different sort of elements. We, I, we In the class I met you in, we went over <laughs> some of these, right? Um, if I had my slides in front of you, I'd just go through them. But, um, but all of these elements um, kind of, it's not like every company is doing everything exactly the same way, but they're all adhering to principles that allow them to move more quickly. And those principles are things like, Um, you know, have the doer also be the thinker, have teams be uh, empowered and autonomous and able to make decisions, able to get work done, able okay. to collaborate, um, you know, hire good people and just and get out of their way, right? Create systems so they don't have to be constantly asking for permission or waiting to be yeah. told what to do. Yeah, that always But, happens. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. So people can just kind of jump in and do stuff, right? Yeah. And uh, well, talking about one year and a half ago, We were talking about holacracy, and it was like a really mm-hmm. uh, a term that everyone was was talking about. Word, right? Everyone was talking about holacracy and stuff. Yeah. Do you have any idea what happened <laughs> Do you have to any that? On yeah, that? it's still out there. Holacracy is still a thing. Um, Medium was at one point the biggest company that was uh, implementing holacracy. Have Williams brought it in? Um, they've simply they've since then moved away from it. Um, I think they still use a kind of self-organizing principle. They've just m- moved away from kind of the brand of holacracy, or, or okay. the, the strict um, process. Um, Zappos is, of course, applying holacracy. That's their that they still they still call it holacracy. They still use it. They're mm-hmm. still working with Brian Robertson over at Holacracy One. Um, we at the Ready, uh, the team I work with there, we apply. I don't know if we are technically a holacracy or not, but we apply. We use their. Their software package, which is called GlassFrog, in order to to handle governance and handle our meetings, and and so we use some, and we use a lot of the um, let's call them like the soft technologies, you know, the kinds of meetings and the kinds of uh, the the, yeah. the ways, kinds of decision making and that kind of thing that come from Holacracy. So Holacracy is still a thing, um, but I think it's also I think we're growing. We're growing beyond it a little bit, perhaps, or not beyond Holacracy. I, I, I can't say that. I think Holacracy is always going to be a thing. I think it's a, I think it's a solid organization. I don't want to say anything ne- negative about them at all, but I will say that it's a it's a particular brand and a particular application of these principles. But there are probably other ways you can apply the principles. Perfect. Yeah. Um, 
I just want to, to close this, this topic about uh, like really technical thing about companies. I just want to address one more thing that is, and I think that's really valuable for everyone who has a company and, or starting a company and they're trying to take this, make decisions. Uh, the way of like census over, what was the thing? Consensus uh, over consent. consent. Yeah. Exactly. I just yeah. want to address that thing. Sure. Can you give us your take on that? Yeah. So when actually, when I talk about decision-making and holacracy, that's one of, the, this is one of their principles that I really appreciate a lot. And they use a methodology called integrative decision-making or okay. IDM. So basically the idea is that um, when the most of the time when we try to come together to make a decision as a group of people, um, we want everybody to be a yes to that decision. And then mm -hmm. we would call that consensus, right? So you, are, do you think this is a good idea? Yes, I think it's a good idea. Do you? Yes. But what happens is it's very, very hard to get that, to that sometimes. Okay. When we do get to it, often we have um, changed the decision so much that it has lost its... its, its to, to make everyone agree to To that. make everybody agree. It's, it's lost kind of its edge. It's lost its boldness sometimes. Okay. And then often also what happens is just because of human dynamics... People will say yes to something, but they'll actually be in their heart or in their brain and there'll be a no, which means that they'll will after the meeting, they will just block whatever, you know, that, you know, like, so it, they, they say yes, but they don't really mean it. And that, okay. and that creates a sudden thing. So the, the idea behind decision making by consent would be the alternative. It's still group decision making and it still leverages the benefits of group decision making, which is that we get everybody's input on something that everybody is clear on what's being decided mm -hmm. um, and that uh, we also get everybody's commitment to doing whatever the thing is that we're doing. Um, but we don't have to get them to say yes. The, the, the change is, it's very subtle, but we get them to say to not be a no. And, okay. And what I mean by that is that they, they just say, they, they, they believe that whatever we're, the proposal is, that it's safe to try. That's it. That's, That's it. The only it's, thing you need. It's not, you know, they may think this may. I think this. I you know, they may say. They may even say in the meeting. I think this is a stupid idea, but it's safe, safe to, to try. try. So let's try it and see what happens. So they get to say it's a stupid idea, which is makes them feel good, uh -huh. and they're able to support the decision in a in a more clear way. So it it just it sort of surfaces things and. And um, there's a whole process that kind of gets you yeah. there. Um, I don't think we need to necessarily explain yeah. the process here. If you're curious about it, do go to Holacracy's website and check out IDM or Integrative Decision Making. And, and I, you know, I hope there's a video. I think there should be like a video there or something. Of yeah, I think there was. There was. Yeah. Yeah. The good thing is that it 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 makes things keep moving forward, right? Exactly. Instead of stopping and waiting another meeting, another meeting to make a decision, it just Let's go with it and try it. Right. You, 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 you move. And I think, you know, one of the most dangerous things a, a, a new company can do or any company can do right now is to not make a decision, right? Is to not take action. Um, and so it also changes sometimes the nature of this. This process will change the nature of the proposals because we'll often be, for something to be safe to try, often it has to be small. So we'll actually make many small decisions rather than one big one. One big one. Right. But it does. But it also means that, you know, once we're once we're doing stuff, we're actually testing in the real world. We're getting new data. Okay. And the great thing about it, too, is that if I made a decision one day based on one set of data and then I try something and the next day that generates new data, I can bring the proposal back to the group and say, now we have new data. 
Now can we can we alter that decision that we made yesterday? Okay, that's right. Yeah, you're not doing it based on whatever you think. You're trying it and see what works, right? Right. It's highly related to something we would call dynamic steering, which is or con continuous steering. So you know, like businesses, we used to we used to um, kind of plan like rockets. You know, you you aim the rocket, you set the rocket off, but once it's flying, you can't alter its course. But you know, I think businesses today we want them to be more like bicycles or maybe to keep with the space metaphor, um, the space shuttle. The space shuttle is only on or was only on um, course 3% of the time, right? right? And so it's always constantly doing these minor course corrections. And so having a process like IDM in place means that you can constantly be making decisions as a group. And if you get good at making decisions as a group, you don't avoid them. You actually jump into them and lean into them, which is, which is really, really valuable for an organization. Perfect. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit less about what you do on the consulting firm sure. and more about Bob. Yeah. And like what, because we were talking about, or, or we have this notion that the normal career paths don't exist anymore. Yeah. And I think you're a <laughs> proof of that, right? Yeah, like, I have a pretty abnormal career path. Yeah. yeah like you've written a book, you, you yeah. have a book, uh, yeah. Agile, it's called, right? Agile Business. Agile yeah. Business. Um, you write for for blogs and, and magazines and stuff. Yeah, I have a regular column on Ink Magazine or Ink dot com. Right, not the not, not the mag, not the paper magazine. I'm not that yeah. special, but you know, Ink dot com. Yeah, yeah. And so, how do you get to do that? How do you get to 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 be that person that people go for an, an opinion, an answer, and and I would like to talk a little bit about that, about personal branding, a little bit about sure. How do you get trust? Yeah, I, I'm still figuring it out, I guess. You know, like, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not like a, a super high paid speaker or anything like that. I'm working on it. You know, I'm trying yeah. to figure that out. The reason I wrote the book a few years ago was because, um, well, one, I just wanted to tackle a big project. And I thought mm -hmm. it was important to kind of get some perspective. You know, I, I had some perspective. I actually, I actually edited the book and wrote the outline, the kind of the, the structure of it. But then it was a collection of essays from my colleagues that I was working with at the time. So okay. it was sort of a co-author, but I was the I was the center of the project. And um, I tried four different times to get that project approved and to get funding put for it because it was funded by a company I was working for at the time. And I just kind of kept coming back. I kept testing it. And they were I was very fortunate that I had um, the company. Was, it was a wonderful group of people. Um, They were Rally Software. Now they're um, they got acquired about two years ago by um, Computer Associates. But um, they uh, the leaders there really believed in the project. And but then they were always like, "Yeah, but you're, the way you're describing it doesn't work." So okay. I was like, "Okay, um, help me understand." And then they would, and then I would go back. You know, so it was this iterative. But, but I want to take a step, a little step yeah. back. Yeah, sure. Before that, can you like give us a little bit of background, like, because? Many people might think like, oh, he wrote a book because he's always, has always been on, on this path of, oh, yeah. you know, of, of academic or studying and writing and stuff. But that hasn't, like, that's not what happened in real life, right? No. So I would like to know, to, to, to get to know a little bit of that and people might relate somehow on, on their. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I changed jobs on average every couple, every like two years, probably for most of my life. I'm 51 now. And so as I was, Um, you know, you know, after what you enter business at what, like I got out of college at like 21. So that's mm -hmm. been 30 years now. And, um, each year I would sort of change a lot. And I always was very, you know, I'm kind of the, the Gen X, 
uh, and you know my generation, the people I hung out with in my generation, like either you went into business and became a kind of Republican uh, <laughs> a real estate developer or or stockbroker. Those were the big money things when I graduated. But most of us really aspired to a more authentic um, life, or many of us did. Uh, and so I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to, um, I was intellectually curious. Um, so I was interested in martial arts and meditation. So I went to Japan and I studied and just kind of lived more of a bohemian lifestyle for a long time. Okay. When I entered business, um, I had some skills doing desktop publishing and it was in the early days of desktop publishing, the, the late nineties. And so I became a newspaper designer, uh, and eventually became the, the design director at the San Francisco examiner. Um, and also I did a lot of design work on kind of early internet stuff during the dot-com boom there. And that was interesting, but I still never felt truly engaged in the work. I liked the work. I could get paid okay to do it. And you were good at it? I was pretty good at it. I don't consider myself an amazing designer by a long stretch, but I, but I was solid and I, and I was somewhat mature. So, I, you know, I also got, you know, promoted to management and, and, Somehow, uh, you know that seemed, it, it all kind of it all kind of worked, but the bottom really fell out of it because um, I was in newspapers um, in the in the early two thousands. The whole the whole market just kind of you know design. Um, everybody had become a web designer, and then the dot com bust happened, and all of a sudden there wasn't work, and newspapers were a dying industry and didn't seem like a good place to go back to. And so I had a real crisis of of faith, I guess you know crisis of. <laughs> Um, and so at that time, I did what a lot of people did was I, I got an MBA or I went to and I did an alternative kind of MBA in sustainable and green business um, through the Presidio School in San Francisco. But still, that didn't I was expecting it to give me direction, but it didn't. And so it took a long time for me to really find I, I would say it was I was in my 40s before I really found what I wanted to do. And um, and it was very slow. And then I, I realized that. I really had this love of organizations and I really had this every time I was in an, or, in an organization I would always I had a systems view of it I would always see where it was weak and I would want to improve it and that I not that I just wanted to improve it but I really cared about it like it was something that really it, it spoke to me it meant it something moved to me. You. it moved me personally yeah just like watching people suddenly start to work together who aren't working together well and as I became a, a coach doing agile um, software development coaching, I would really have these moments where I would watch troubled teams um, under, you know, I, I give, give myself some credit for it anyway, but under my, <laughs> my direction, they would suddenly become more engaged. They would somewhere be, somehow become more involved. And I found myself, it was really like it was, it was emotional for me. It was meaningful. And I realized it was also connected to my desire to improve the world, right? Like we, we all want to, I think most of us want to leave the world a bit of a better place. And I was always very interested in social problems and environmental problems. And I realized that the behavior of organizations is really part of our problem. And while many of my colleagues from graduate school went into corporate social responsibility and looking at measuring the, the social impact or the environmental impact of companies directly, I always felt like the problem... Because they studied that, so that's what they're going to do. Like yeah. Like the typical... Yeah, it's a typical path. And I think it's a, you know, it's a valid path. Like I would watch them do it and be like, oh, I wish I cared about that. But, <laughs> but for me, it was always more of a structural problem. It was like, for, I, don't, I, I believe organizations behave badly because people... Not because they're run by bad people, though often they are. Sometimes they are. <laughs> 
But it's often because there are a lot of good people inside the organization who are just playing a game that's kind of broken in some way. This doesn't really work well. Um, I see this in organizations, and this is a debate we have all the time um, with my team, which is, do we work? You know, who do we work for, and who don't we work for? And my belief is, and currently, um, and it may change, but my belief currently is that for most companies, if you um, improve the engagement of the individuals in those companies, you will eventually create the conditions for that organization to be a better corporate citizen. So okay. the corporate social responsibility, the environmental performance. And if you don't do that, if you don't create a participatory government or a participatory uh, organization, um, even if the mission of that organization is good, it's still going to end up being bad in the end, right? So right. I believe in the methodology. I believe in kind of what we do as being a force of good in the world. Yeah. Perfect. So then getting back <laughs> now to the, to the part of the, of the branding and the book and stuff. Yeah. So you discovered that you enjoyed, uh, right. you were moved by the way companies worked in the systems and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was important. And in what moment did you decide like, okay, so now I'm going to try this thing and <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I mean, I should say when I wrote the book, I didn't really have a strong belief in my own, like okay. right now, right now I believe in my own, uh, like I, I have much more experience under my belt now okay. and, I, and I feel like, oh, I, I kind of know what I'm doing. But at that time I felt kind of new. So the book was really one, it was an opportunity to learn from a lot of people to learn about the topic it was also an opportunity to learn about just what goes into publishing a book because i didn't know it was mm -hmm. a mystery to me at the time and um and i had and my hypothesis of course is when you talk about personal branding is that if you have a book people think you're a serious person right and yeah. even to this day and they've like, never read it but yeah sometimes right yeah sometimes they don't read it and they exactly oh he wrote the book on agile right and i go like, oh, i didn't write the book i wrote a book about agile and i had a lot of help But uh, but even now, people you know, people point to me and say, he, even if they don't read the book, and it, you know, honestly, it's a it's a good book. Like I I, yeah. I I I learned a lot from writing the book, and I and I and I'm proud of the content in, in it. But um, but it was very much a personal branding play on my part. I also thought at the time that it may just be my first book. Like it may not really do much for me, but at least I'll know how to write a book, and so. Maybe the second book or the third. You can book. repeat it and re it's yeah. safe to try. Safe to try, yeah. And iterative development, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I haven't worked on a second book yet. I, I talk about it from time to time. My wife and I actually are considering writing a small thing together this winter, but uh, but I don't really have a solid plan yet. But um, but I do notice that 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 demonstrating to the world that both like you care and have some skill. Mm -hmm. And having something that you can point to and, and, and having put, you know, like people say you wrote a book, you're like, like, that's not easy, right? You know, you're okay, sort of like, yeah. wow, you wrote a book, you know, like it feels, it looks like an achievement. Um, and so I think people, people admire that kind of, that kind of effort. So I'm, I'm super proud of the book. And right now I'm kind of relaunching my website. I'm launching my own podcast. So yeah, yeah we can talk about that. But, but, you know, I think it's, I think these things work because I find them fun And because they demonstrate my skill and my care. And I think that's what, if you're looking to brand yourself, don't just, you know, follow the blogging advice. If blogging doesn't speak to you, don't freaking, you know, don't do it, right? Like okay. if, if, you know, maybe podcasting is your thing or maybe um, public speaking is your thing or maybe, you know, or maybe you don't need to be 
you know, in a in a big Public. digital space, maybe you just need to be a local. You know, lo, you know, if you're a massage therapist and you want to be, you just need to be lo- known in your city, right? You can't, yeah. you couldn't handle interest from, you know, Paris or New York yeah, City trying or to something. Tokyo to give a massage or something. Right, right, right. I, I guess it happens, but you know. <laughs> so, um, so you want to, you know, you want to really think about, and I think it's, I think there, I think authenticity matters. You know, I think one of the things I'm learning is you know and you know you and I have talked about this but there's some aspects of my story which I'm I'm I, which are embarrassing to say the least in some ways right and uh, you know you listened to my podcast the other day that you know with with uh, with Srini that where I talk about like kind of a very difficult period of my life a very strange period of my life uh, and I'll I'll link to that also you'll link to that too okay cool unmistakable yeah, creative podcast right yeah so I, I would you know and and so when I talk about that stuff I realize like it it's partially I do it for two reasons I think I do it or maybe more but one reason is that it's a unique part of my story and it's memorable right mm-hmm. but the other I think deeper reason is that when I because it's something that I'm a little embarrassed about and because it's something that I feel bad about that when I don't talk about it it's uh, it, it, it takes energy it takes energy not to talk about it okay it's like right? the how do you say the big elephant in the room yeah. that no one's addressing right? yeah exactly and even if they don't know about it I know about it and I'm not addressing it and I feel inauthentic I don't feel like a real person I don't feel like I'm really me and bec- and about a year ago I started talking about all this stuff I gave a, sp- a speech on it um, and and then I wrote some articles and then I just realized like I feel more authentic I feel more real and, and I feel more courageous somehow too like I feel like I have more courage and I think I really think when it comes to personal branding that's undervalued like everybody is unique you don't have to work to make yourself unique I think what you have to do is discover those things and, and be to listen, and, right? and to listen to yourself and to have the courage to talk about the tough stuff to talk about the stuff because often the stuff that makes us unique is also the stuff that makes us weird Right. Yeah. And we feel like, well, we and well, I don't. I want to fit in. I don't want to be weird. But you know, if you want to stand out, you know, Steve Jobs, he was weird. You know, Bill yeah. Gates, he's weird. Nelson Mandela was. I don't weird. know if you said it on the other podcast or not, but because I just listened to it last week. Yeah. But the weird kids at school, sometimes when they grow up, like those things that made them weird. Yeah. Are the things that are cool on them, or like yeah. you know, like oh, people when I talk to them because. They are experts on comic books or whatever, or they are really good at doing some weird thing. And yeah, they were bullied maybe <laughs> when they were younger, right? Yeah. Well, actually, it's funny. I was talking to somebody about this last night. Um, we were talking about. So I have a ten-year-old stepson, mm-hmm. and well, he, he'll be ten next month. So he's not ten yet. But he's <laughs> he's close. And um, this guy I went out to dinner with last night. He has a couple of kids, and we were talking about you know child rearing. And one of the things he, he said is that like. I don't know. I, I, I really, I really like this. That 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 I think his son is like the youngest in his class, and my my son's the youngest in his class. Okay. And being the youngest can be kind of weird. It can mm-hmm. be hard. And he's and and I've always been a little bit concerned, but he's like, no, no, I like it because when everything's easy, people become kind of jerks, or you know, like they become okay. like not great people. Or they do, they, self, they they don't try. Righteous, or what does it call it? Like they think they deserve. Uh, yeah, yeah. They think that they they become like yeah, like um, like conceited or yeah. something, right? And they feel like they deserve everything. And so, um, yeah, because we were talking about this just in class just now about the kind of the growth mindset that when, uh, mm. like when I was young, I was called smart, you know, and because I was called smart, I think I shied away from 
challenges because I didn't because if I if something if I didn't do something well, then no people wouldn't think I was smart anymore, right? And so I didn't learn to have this kind of growth mindset, this kind of idea of like grit and resilience and yeah. Carl Dweck work. talks about these, right? And yeah. fixed versus growth mindset. Right, right. You Carol, guys want to Google it? Exactly. Yeah, the, the fixed versus growth mindset of Carol Dweck's work, and then also um, is it Angela Duckworth's stuff on grit is really okay. part of it too, right? And the idea that um, that challenges kind of shape us and make us who we are and 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 make us better, and I think that's the. I guess that's what I'm realizing now. I don't. I'm trying to remember exactly what I was. I was making a point, and I can't quite remember. But, <laughs> but, the, but I think in my career, um, I now embrace challenges more, um, and and I I try. I, I don't know. Like, and it's weird. Life is also easier. Like I have more challenges, but life is easier at the okay. same time. I I don't know. There's some weird paradox, but. Do you think it has to do with not expecting an exact result or something, or, or yeah, or what I, do you think, think it I think be? it's prioritizing like growth and learning over like losing fear success. of failing. Yeah, you know, just, just try and see what happens, and maybe it won't work. Maybe it will. Give it a try and see. Like I'm trying this podcast right yeah, now. Yeah, that's what you? I'm doing too. Yeah, it's yeah, a, we're so all trying to experiment. Trying so, yeah. Let's see what happens. It's the sixth episode. Uh, <laughs> I've been changing, like, I, I, I recorded the first four uh -huh. with some sort of, of uh, introduction, and now I heard it and I don't like it anymore, so I'm going to do it differently next time. So, right. But it's trying and, and doing things that are safe to try, and, like, I'm, I'm sure the first five, no one will <laughs> listen to them. So that, that makes me yeah. able to, to do these things. Yeah. I, I, want, I want to know uh, a little bit more on... Do you have any any role models, someone you, you admire, something that, that you think has shaped the way you think up to now? Oh my gosh, so many. Um, yeah, uh, wow. I mean, I'm inspired. I mean, there's always books and authors, but I think maybe let me talk more about kind of the personal stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this one's this one's kind of hard. So my 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 friend, my mentor, um, her name was uh, Jean Tabeka, and she wrote a book called Collaboration Explained. And the company that I worked at where I wrote my book, Rally, she was the kind of the head of our thought leadership of our practice. So she was, and she gave me, I don't know if you remember, there's a game that we played in the class um, that I taught you were in um, called the ballpoint game. Yeah. Okay, so Jean was the person who really, I don't know if she helped originate it, but she definitely helped to bring it into the agile world. And uh, And she was somebody who, Uh, who she worked very hard to make organizations better. And then she had this very deep kind of vulnerability herself. So whenever I would talk to her, she always would express like she did, like that she didn't feel like she had all the answers. And sometimes she didn't feel like she had any answers. And sometimes and she, we would have these glasses of wine late at night and these kind of deep questioning conversations. And I, and she's somebody who has, I think who really, really shaped because she cared so much and because she, She had so much intelligence and skill in, in the way she saw organizations and so much vulnerability um, that I, I found a huge value. And the reason she really comes to mind, one, is because I was just teaching the ballpoint game here in, uh -huh. at Sadim, and I feel, always feel connected to her when I do that. And also she died um, very suddenly a cut, like um, uh, about three or four months ago. And it was something that hit my, me and my community very, very hard and, and, and I found it very challenging. And then another guy who I'll, I'll mention 
uh, who I who I think who is a, a dear friend of mine. Yeah, so you want to talk about uh, these things that no one talks about? You know, like I don't yeah. know if, if any interview they've done to you. I, I want to know <laughs> what makes Bob human. What right? makes me human? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think I've always had. Um, I, I don't know. I'm always I've always been curious. I've always wanted to make the world a better place, and I've always wanted to. But I but I also spent a lot of time, as I say, sort of drifting in life, and I think. Um, maybe the what makes me human is uh, there's this idea of uh, everybody knows about post-traumatic stress, mm -hmm. right? Like you have a stressful experience and then you um, and then it and it haunts you the rest of your life. Well, there's an equally um, common phenomenon. It's measurable. It's research. There's solid research behind it called post-traumatic growth where frequently traumas in people's lives actually break them free of their past ha patterns, their past habits, and they're able to rebuild something. And for myself, it was after going through a period, a very, very hard period a few years ago when I actually, you know, considered suicide. I considered, you know, like, I was like, things just aren't working. I'm middle, I, you know, I'm approaching middle age anyway, and like things aren't working for me. What, what the hell is wrong with me? And instead I decided to kind of, Um, stick around and see if I could make something work and see if I could make a change. And I tried and I worked very, very hard to make changes. But it also, I think, grew out of like without that stressful experience, without that bad experience, I don't think I would have had the ability to make the change. And um, you hear this from alcoholics all the time. So mm -hmm. I, 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 I don't identify as an alcoholic myself, but I've spent some time in the sort of the recovery community, the 12 step recovery community. And you'll hear this all the time from people who are in recovery where they'll talk about that thing that is their demon, that thing that is the worst part of themselves or the most vulnerable part of themselves is also the thing that is that gave them the experience, that gave them the source of their strength and gave them their life back. And I would say that that, you know, if anything, you know, I don't know, the hardships that I <laughs> have had in life, which have have been, you know. They've been my hardships. I mean, they've, they've been hard. They're not as hard as, as I've seen other people go through, but, but they've been rough. Um, but those are the things that I think have really, really made me who I am and kind of embracing them and, 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 and welcoming them and acknowledging them and being grateful for them in some way without wanting to seek them out again, right? Okay, but I'm yeah, still yeah, like yeah. really, really grateful that that happened because I do feel like I have a, a truly, like a very, I have a very remarkable life now. Um, especially when you compare it to what it once was, but I just think I'm a I'm a really lucky person. I'm happily married. I have a good I have a career that I care about. I get to come to Mexico and teach. Um, I've you know, and I've had like some really really interesting life experiences where I've seen aspects of life that I think a lot of people don't get to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and, and to start to wrap this up. Uh, do you have any recommendations on, on things people should read or should uh, see, maybe a movie or a video? <laughs> And not, not just on the business part, because I'm interested in that, but also I know you're a lot into like, you're a lot into like sociology type of thing, human behavior. And, and yeah. I also like that. So could you? Give us some some input on that. Sure, I mean, I I, I can give you, the, and this is just kind of top of mind. I read a lot, and so I always have have a have a bunch of you know books. Maybe there's one two books that you say these made a difference. Yeah, so there was a book that I read last year, probably by the time we met, um, called *Sapiens: uh, A Brief History of Humankind*, and it's by uh, a Israeli scholar named Yuval Harari, and it's uh, it's a remarkably readable book. Like it sounds like a, such a big topic. Mm -hmm. 
and he covers everything from the history of economy to um, the kind of the history of war to um, a lot of these things. The, the thesis of the book is not just a history of humankind, but really looking at what are the aspects of humanity that are unique. What is it that makes okay. us human? And if I and I, I've never read a book that has given me sort of a deeper appreciation for our weaknesses and our flaws. I think it's, it, I think it's a really beautiful book. The other book that kind of in that vein um, also is a book by a biologist. Uh, he's a Harvard biologist named E.O. Wilson, Edward o- Owen Wilson. Um, I think he's still alive. He's in his 80s now. And he was been, he's been a specialist in evolutionary biology, specifically ants, for many, many years. But he wrote a book on humans a little while ago. Okay. And the book is called The Social Conquest of Earth. Right. And, is, and it was equally eye-opening. Um, I feel like there's many others when it comes to like personal development. I've read, a, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of everybody from like, you know, Seth Godin to uh, my friend Jonathan Fields just came out with a book called um, How to Live a Good Life. I really, you know, okay. respect that. So there's a lot of like personal development stuff that I really enjoy. <coughs> but I would also look to um, the the positive psychology movement because I think it tends to be very evidence based uh, and has a lot of science. So I, I tend to go back to like what's this? You know, like if I'm trying, if I'm struggling with something like self-esteem, or if I'm struggling mm-hmm. with something like motivation, then I really want to go back. There's a lot of good science about it right there. And if you, if you look at um, what Martin Seligman has done with the the Masters in Applied Positive Psychology at UPenn, and a lot of the people that have come out of that, there's some really really interesting research and interesting work coming out of that. Perfect. Thank you very much. And the last question I want to ask you is: What three things have you learned uh, that you would like to pass on to, like? your son or whatever what three things that, that you've learned from your life or, or from life in general that you think everyone needs to know yeah um I, the first is kind of kind of silly I, or not or, or or sentimental but it's like that everybody's unique and everybody's okay you know like okay. like your experience is cool like don't don't think that you're because you've had some crazy experience don't think you're a bad person right and and your experience is valid um i think the other is or one other is uh this idea of, and this comes out of actually, we talked about it briefly, Angela Duckworth's work, but this idea of grit um, and this idea of a growth mindset. Actually, growth mindset and grit are very related. So maybe a growth mindset, but this idea that when you face a challenge that you can just add the word yet to the end of that challenge. So it's like, so like if, uh, if, my, if I'm trying to, uh, you know, write a book, I don't know how to write a book yet. You know, like, so if I, if I just add yet to the end of the sentence, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling better about, okay, already <laughs> about this suddenly. And that kind of feeds into grit, which is this idea that real success, um, you know, real success comes. It doesn't have, it doesn't, you don't have to work like 24 hours a day. You don't mm-hmm. have to work forever. You know, you don't have to like kill yourself working. But real success comes from um, a kind of perseverance through difficulty and okay. not taking the first sign of, uh, of difficulty as a sign that you're doing it wrong. But rather, you know, holding on and pushing, pushing through. Having stamina. Yeah. And I'm going to give you one more because I feel like the, that the set, the, those two were just kind of one item. But mm-hmm. the, the, the last one is really that, uh, it's, it's, I, I, you know, it's never too late to change. You know, I didn't start, I don't feel like I started my career until I was like in my, in my forties. I don't feel like I really began understanding life and being engaged with my career until I was 40. And, you know, people like yourself, I'm always inspired by who seem to have started much younger to really be engaged in their career. But, but, uh, for all you old guys out there and old and old women, older, older women out there, everybody who's in their forties or fifties, like 
like you can make a change you can you know you're not stuck with the life you've got you can you you can actually shift so thank you it. very much bob for this wonderful interview or conversation i liked it a lot and uh, if there anything is there a way people can reach to you sure my website is bobgower.com and if you're interested in working with me um, you can check out what we do at theready.com and then all of those things will kind of direct you to my writings and you can you know I, I'm just searching on Bob Gower you'll find me I'm, I'm like one of five Bob Gowers in the world yeah thank you thank you very much for that you can listen to this uh, podcast or the next podcast on Pocket Casts iTunes or Stitcher and I'll make sure Bob shares this with everyone Will. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Diego. Appreciate it.